0: Welcome to the Vanguard Bible Church podcast. For more information about Vanguard Bible Church, visit www.vanguardbible.org or come worship with us on Sunday mornings at 9 a.m. at Freedom Middle School in Northwest Bakersfield. We hope you enjoy today's message. Church, I am so excited to be back. I I, I am ready to preach. It is Uh, The past two weeks was the first time, and I want to say maybe a year and a half, that I had two weeks off without preaching. Preaching is my favorite thing to do, but it was nice just to come worship with you. It was nice just to have my Bible open, and, you know, it's a different experience. Like, I, I love this whole preaching experience, but I also love just worshiping God and focusing on that. So let me start by asking a pretty serious question of you, and uh, that is, how is the health of your faith? How is the health of your faith? This is a serious question. Would you describe your faith as being steadfast, mature, perfect? Is your faith perfect? Is your faith, faith lacking nothing? Of course not, right? Okay, well, let me let me ask uh, maybe an easier question. Has your faith grown? Has your faith grown in the last month? In this last month, your faith has it grown? In the last year, has it grown? Since you've become a Christian, has your faith actually grown since you've become a Christian? And not just in knowledge of the Book of John. I think we could all pass a book a, a test now on the Book of John. But what about you personally? What about your holiness? What about your love, your character, your patience, your endurance, your forgiveness? Do you have a joy that just annoys people? Right? That supernatural Christian joy, it's like, what's up with this person? Why are they so happy? Now typically, when we talk about church growth, right, when we talk about growing as a church, the question that's normally asked, especially to pastors, is how many people do you have? Like how many people have you grown by? And yet that's not a biblical question, right? No, at no point when any apostle is addressing a church or any letter to the church or even God talking to churches is, is the question how many people are there? How many people showed up? The issue is are we growing? The question to ask is are your people becoming more like Jesus? That, that, that is growth in a church I I truly believe with all my heart that a church of five people who want to grow who legit want to grow is healthier than a church of 500 people who are just content in their faith who just show up every week even if it's faithfully who aren't being challenged who just leave church and then come back the next Sunday I don't think that is healthy and so the question this morning is would you like to grow more would you like to grow more? Become more like Jesus, our savior, shepherd, and king? Then let's do this. Let's do this, guys. The rest of the year, aside from three weeks that we're going to be in Jonah and finish Jonah before the end of the year, the rest of the year we are going to be in the book of James. And so now is me telling you to turn to the book of James where, and, and put a bookmark in there, whatever you got to do, we're going to be in there through the rest of the year. So go ahead and find that. Now James is the 59th out of 66 books of the Bible. It's towards the end. If you get to Revelation, you have gone too far. Small book towards the back of the Bible. Alright, I'm judging by the eye contact. We're waiting on me now. Okay, so the book of James is a book of faith and works. In fact, this series is called Faith That Works. This is what faith looks like. Now, we spent 11 months, 11 months going through the book of John. And I think we went through it pretty quickly, actually. 11 months. And what did, what did John do, or was, what was John trying to do to us in those 11 months? He was trying to convince us to believe over and over. Guys, please believe me. I was there like I hung out, like Jesus was my friend. I saw this. I saw him on the cross. And John is trying to convince us to believe. Now, the letter of James, or the book of James, is about, or it's two believers the book of James is for believers to act like they believe. To have works that show they believe. The aim and goal of this book is growth. It is to grow you in godliness, maturity, regardless of your circumstances and as we will see this week because of your circumstances. Like There's no excuse. Because James, quite frankly, he's like that awesome coach who loves you But he's going to get in your face. He's going to push you because he wants you to grow. He's not going to let you quit. He's not going to let you have excuses. He's going to tell you what to do and what not to do. In fact, out of 108 verses in the book of James, 59 are commands. 108 verses, 59 commands. That's what we're getting into. And so if you're a servant of Jesus Christ this morning, then it's time to get to work. Let's get to work growing. Our sermon is called Faith in God Brings Joy in Trials. Let me pray for us. Lord, thank you for getting us um, all the way through the book of John, that awesome book which highlights, Lord, the, the glory of Jesus, Lord, the one that we believe in with all of our, with all of our hearts, minds, and souls, Lord. As we come to the book of James, Lord, this inspired book, Lord, this message to the people who love you and follow Jesus, Lord, may we be convicted where, we're, where we need to be convicted, Lord, and not gloss over what sometimes can be difficult passages that are, that are quite frank, Lord. Please bless us as we go through this book. Lord, may we grow. Sincerely, Lord, grow us. Let us grow. Aim towards perfection. Let us aim to be like Jesus. By the end of the year, let us be able to say we grew since we started this series, Lord. And we ask these things to the glory of Jesus and by the power of the Holy Spirit, Lord. Amen. So, James 1 1. James, a servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ the twelve tribes in the dispersion. Greetings. What's up? Hey, guys. Pretty, (laughs) chill, short, sweet introduction, right? Not like Paul. It's not two chapters of Paul saying hello, which is great, but that's not James' style. We will see. Believe it or not, even in this very short and sweet introduction, we learn a lot about James and about this letter. The first, of course, is uh, who he is. Well, he is James, right? And so, uh, why is that important that he, just says, that he just says James? Well, he's making an assumption. When he just says James without, without citing titles or references, you should know who he is. Like, he, his reputation, you know, precedes him. Which is kind of crazy when you think about the fact that there's at least three Jameses in prominent ministry at this time. Right? The two disciples of Jesus and Jesus' brother. And so most scholars and, and unscholarly little me, we all we would all agree that that James here is the brother of Jesus, the one that Jesus talked to after the resurrection in First Corinthians fifteen, seven, and the same James that is mentioned throughout the book of Acts, including at the Jerusalem Council. Very prominent guy. <clears throat> Now, what's interesting about James as well, he's mentioned throughout the rest of the Bible. It's not like this is the only time we've heard of this guy. But we actually have a lot of outside sources, outside of the Bible, that talk about him. Again, he has a reputation. Like, th- this is a historical figure. And so some of his titles were uh, James the Just, James the Humble, and James the Righteous. Like that's, and that's what other people call him, right? And so this is... That just tells you a little bit about this guy. And so knowing that, that he has all this reputation and titles, that he is a pastor and leader of the early church, that he's the brother of Jesus, for him just to say, like, hey, it's just me, James, right? That, that's being really humble, right? He's like, I'm not, I'm not, I'm not going to use that card at all. And so James also mentions very quickly what he does. He serves Jesus. Very important. And actually, if if I may Greek out here for a second, because I actually thought about getting this tattooed at one point, the word uh, doulos. So I did a lot, lot of research on this because I was going to get James, servant of God. Uh, Maybe someday. Um, But doulos actually means slave. Now, we don't like to say slave, so modern translations. I think more than half of Bible translations still say slave. Um, but there's some people who just don't want to use that for various reasons, but the word here is slave. James, James is a slave of Jesus, which is crazy when you consider that, again, this is his brother. Like how many of you are good, like one of your siblings, you are going to declare, maybe if it's your birthday, you guys do that, where I'm, you're my slave for a day or I'll be your slave today because it's your birthday. No, James is saying Jesus, his brother, is his king, is his master. How difficult must that have been for James to do that? Well, we know it wasn't easy because in Matthew 13, the first time, well, one of the first times we meet James, what does it say? Well, they didn't, he didn't believe in Jesus, right? Like his, his siblings were like, he is not God. Why did he keep saying that? They did not believe him. And that we know within a couple of years... James is at the front. He's not only a believer, he's at the front. He's in councils, he is preaching, his reputation is spreading everywhere. Now surprisingly, he mentions Jesus here, which is not surprising, but it's surprising that Jesus is only mentioned twice in this entire book, both at the beginning. Cross, never mentioned, And so James is not trying to convince you to believe in Jesus. That was John, right? That was John's deal. James, his deal is, oh, you say you believe? Let's find out. You believe? Let's go. Let's get to work. Let's see what you believe. And so who was James writing to? He's writing to dispersed Christians. Dispersed. And so all over... They're scattered everywhere, every direction. And not only that, so these are Jews, mainly Jewish Christians, which means they're in a really bad situation. Because they are Jewish nationally and they have now switched religions to Christianity, who doesn't like them? Everybody. The Jews don't like them because they just betrayed their family. Gentiles don't like them because they're still Jews. Gentiles at this point don't see a difference between Uh, judaism and christianity so they just think they're jews and so nobody likes them so because of that again they're being scattered trying to go anywhere to find you know peace security to earn a living uh they are often homeless poor beaten taken to court it's miserable in fact most historians believe that slaves had it better than these dispersed christians who just did not have a place to go and like you you hear that i feel bad for them oh that sounds horrible You know who doesn't really feel bad for them? James. He will not let them feel bad for themselves, even in their trials. In verse 2, James starts really easy, just a really easy, you know, verse to comprehend. And he says, Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds. Right off the gate. What a difficult verse. What a, and we will talk about this. What a verse that we use incorrectly very often to try to console people. And so maybe a little tone deaf, some would say, but James is telling his beat up brothers and sisters, count it all joy. Because he knows that, that following Jesus means acting and reacting in a certain way. In fact, as he will argue in this passage, well, one of the great things about trials if nothing else, is it tells you something very important. What you have faith in, right? It's easy to have like a hypothetical, abstract faith. It's another thing to have faith that carries you through something difficult. And I, like many of you, you have seen people go through trials and get closer to God who, when they come through something very difficult, they start praying more frequently, more passionately. They open the Word, they come to church. All of a sudden, it becomes so much more real for them. They want, they know that they need God. And so this season makes them better. It makes them more holy, right? It toughens them up. And then, unfortunately, we've all seen the same cases where people who were awesome, always came to church. I mean, they looked the part they go through a trial. What happens? God, why would you let this happen to me? I can't serve a God who doesn't respect my comfort or want me to follow my comfort or my dreams, and so they leave. And so right off the bat, we know that this is important, right? The trials are important to know where your faith is. Now, James doesn't tell us what kind of trials, but by going through this letter, we could see the obvious anxiety, uh, poverty, um, uh, sickness, hardship, and even wealth. Wealth. The trial that we all want. Right? God, please take me through the trial of wealth. And yet, next week, we'll see. It, it sounds funny, but next week, we're going to see like the wealthy. Oh, man, James has a lot to say to them. And so it's not that easy. Add to those trials um, the, the ones that we experience today. Difficult relationships, marriages, um, sometimes our jobs, seasons at our jobs. Um, school, whether that's a difficult class. Uh, even if you're a teacher here, there's difficult classes On that, from that perspective of it. Not to mention physical health and depression. Okay, so then... <laughs> What does it mean to count it all joy? Well, let's start by what it doesn't mean. Counting it all joy is not fake. It is not fake. And so I have a list of a couple things to illustrate this. It is not pretending. It is not pretending to have joy when you are miserable. Right? It's, it's not a mask we put on while we're falling on the part inside. That's not what James is asking you to do. It's not being ignorant. It's not saying everything is fine, this is fine, and everything is burning down around you. It's not being ignorant. That's not joy. That, that, that's fake. It is not enjoying the trial. James does not say enjoy all your trials. They're called trials, not carnivals. We need to be honest with our experience, whatever we may be going through. And if it's a time to cry, then don't laugh. And if it's a time to pray, don't dance. Really process what we are going through. And I think this also very much goes alongside the fact that when somebody in our congregation is going through something, going through a trial, that we need to come alongside them during that process. What don't we do? If somebody in the congregation is going through a trial don't cite James 1 2 is it true yes will they get there yes but don't go up to somebody who's crying and tell them to count it all joy don't do that instead we should bring the joy to them like remind them get them to that place Get them to that place where they realize, oh, God is faithful. God is good. Look at my family who's loving me and supporting me, encouraging me, praying for me, texting me, giving me hugs, buying me ice cream. And lastly, it is not irrational. We are not called to count something joy that can't be counted joy. We're not asked to lie. There is a reason and way to count things all joy, and that way is by deliberate decision. Joy is a deliberate decision. It is a conclusion. It's something we arrive at by reason, for reals. When we count it all joy, it's legitimate. We've weighed out everything and come to the conclusion that there is joy in this, that like, we can have joy in it and there's joy to come afterwards. The question is, what about my faith in God, in Jesus, allows me to have joy in suffering? Right? Why? And the reason why is joy is based on the goal of the trial. You know, if you're in school now, you know what that means. Like, taking that class you don't want to take. Why? Because the joy of walking down (laughs) to get your diploma and having the career you want and knowing at the end of it, you are better off in your life, right? And so there's joy even in the midst of that trial. I know that's maybe a little bit shallower of a way to look at it, but I do believe people go wrong in trials when they don't understand what the goal of life is. And so again, let, let's look at what the, what the goal of life isn't. The goal of life, believe it or not, is not maximum pleasure. It is not self-actualization. It is not being you. When that happens, when our pleasure and our titles and our health or whatever it might be, whenever that's our aim, traveling, uh, you name it, what happens is that joy well no it's like well if you're out traveling joy you get this title joy and what happens is well you get to this point where you hit the bottom and then you're just what bored depressed confused and that's because that's not joy that's hedonism just always looking for something to make you happy isn't joy. That's, it is not a good sign if you have to constantly be going and searching for something to make you happy. And then especially confusing it as joy. Now when trials come to the hedonistic heart, and I think we probably all struggle with this a little bit. Right? We all have this a little bit inside of us. But what happens is when we have a hedonistic heart and trials come, we pray, we pray out to God, but we pray the wrong thing. We pray, God, take me out of this, right? Get me out of this. I don't want to be here. Instead of what we should pray, which is, God, get me out of this what I should get out of this. Let me learn what you are trying to teach me. Know that what I'm going through is for my perfection, right? That's the words of God. He's trying to perfect us. It doesn't mean happy every day. It doesn't mean euphoria. His aim is perfection, even if today means not the greatest day we had. The goal is eternal perfection. When your goal is wrong, the trials of life, they make us see God the wrong way. Because how could a good God, how, if God exists, how could I ever not be happy how could something bad be happening to me when it can't possibly be my fault and it can't possibly be good for me? And that's why people lose their faith when trials come because they don't understand who God is or what we are, the goal of life is. Like the fact that we are Christian. Why are we Christian? Because we're becoming more like Christ. Like the Christ that we worship. What do we sing songs about? These trials that he went through for us and like us, right? He's a priest that's able to sympathize with us. You know, he, he went through what we went through and still prevailed with joy. And so a better goal is to look at having maximum pleasure in Christ by becoming like Christ. Only, it is a process. It's a process. And so, a process that requires steadfastness. Steadfastness. And we saw this in verse 3. We see it in verse 3. For you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. So, of course, we already talked about it's a test of the faith. But it's to produce steadfastness. That word that we use all the time. Right? Nobody, uses, nobody says steadfast anymore. Have you ever heard somebody have a New Year's resolution? I'm going to work on my steadfastness. No. All right. And so what is it? What is steadfastness? Well, um, for, for this morning, uh, the definition we're gonna use, is a t- it's a toughness gained through adversity that develops endurance and character. So, toughness. It's to toughen us up. And it's, it's a toughness that's, that's only gained by trial. The fact is, I think most of us, e- even if you're younger here, you've realized that you are tougher than you think you are when you've come through something, right? You realize how tough you are when you have to realize that. And quite frankly, as as I often pray for many of our young people in this church, as they become adults and there's this anxiety about whether you can become an adult or not, what does that look like? And the world wants you to be scared to be an adult. They want you to be a child forever. No, the plan of God for you is for you to become steadfast. The world is a scary place, absolutely. But every time you do something, take a class, get a job, whatever it might be, get gas on your own, whatever it might be, that trial, and believe me, if you've never gotten gas before, the first time is a trial. You, don't, you remember? And so, but you start doing them. You start doing these things one by one, and you realize, I can do this. Like, I'm adulting, right? But you need that trial, You need that trial. uh, Young people, you are not going to just wake up one day and be where you need to be. It's going to be a process, and a process that's going to be even more beautiful as you do it walking alongside Christ. Knowing that you're not just becoming an adult, but your aim is becoming a perfect adult, and really perfect forever. But then there are trials that are more difficult, more difficult than getting gas. Physical trials, spiritual trials, financial trials, mental, emotional trials that, that shake us to the core, that make us question our faith, that make us question what we believe about everything. Because there comes a moment in everybody's faith where they have to decide whether what they believe is true or it's just an abstract truth or it's a keychain they carry alongside them or it's a sticker they put in their car or, they, or do they believe the words of God? It becomes relevant. It becomes practical. And every time we go through one of these trials, once we get over that that point that says, why God, why me? And we cling to Christ and to his word and to each other, we get steadfast. Which means we get tough. We get spiritually tough. Like, I I don't know, but I mean, for me, my heart, as I was reading this this week, it's like, I'm praying to God, God, I want a spiritually tough church. Yes, tender-hearted and praise and worship of our holy, perfect God, but I want us to be tough. Nothing's going to shake our faith. That's what I want for us. And then when this happens, when we become steadfast, it also helps us with our character. And so speaking on this same subject of joy and trials, the Apostle Paul writes in Romans 5, 3 through 5, not only that, but we rejoice in our sufferings. See, it's not just a James thing, this is a thing. Knowing that suffering produces endurance, and endurance produces character, and character produces hope, and the hope does not put us to shame because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. And we see the example of this all throughout Scripture. Where I mean, how often? I, I, didn't, I didn't have any verses to reference this, but how many times, especially in the New Testament, is somebody beaten and they, they sing happily about it? Like, they're in, they're, they have tears of pain, like literal pain, and, you know, broken bones going every direction, but they're, they're still praising God for their suffering, for the trial that they went through. Because it becomes tougher, and their character is one of hope. And joy, no matter what happens. Which means they're becoming more like Jesus, who for the joy set before him endured the trial of the cross. This got me thinking as well, as I've been like, you got my reps preaching, going church to church, speaking at a lot of churches that had a lot of uh, older people in their church. And they're there every week and they're super happy. Even though they might be in the most pain, sometimes the worst financial situation, they are there every week faithfully and singing. Why? Because even though their body you know, might be shutting down and they've watched their friends die, they are spiritually tough. Like, don't look at the outside appearance. They are spiritually tough. They have been through trial after trial and seen the church split seeing all these horrible things happen, and now they're at a point in their life where they're not going to ever miss church. They understand the joy. They have been through everything. They're not going to miss the gathering of the elect. They are spiritually tough. They are becoming perfect, just like Christ. Now Christ's likeness, as I said earlier, is our ultimate goal, That's our goal is to become like Christ. What is a Christian? Follow Christ, become like Christ. Follow Christ, become like Christ. Well, how do we know? Verse four, and let steadfastness have its full effect that you may be perfect and complete, lacking nothing. So the purpose of steadfastness, the effect, the reason we become steadfast is to at some point become perfect, lacking nothing. Just like Jesus. The writer of Hebrews tells us in Hebrews 12, 2, looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising shame and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. And so Jesus is a perfect, perfect example of his entire ministry, as we read in John. He didn't have a down day. He didn't have any weeks off. Everybody's trying to kill him. Most people are trying to kill him. He's going into hiding. People are spreading rumors about him the whole entire time. And he still has joy. He has joy in the process because he understands what he's doing. There's a joy in the trial that, that carries him through it. Not only that, our faith was founded by his joy in his trial. Right? Everything he did for us, his life, death, and resurrection, that's what founded our faith. And he did it in a joy to also show us how he's going to perfect our faith. We are going to go through trials. Again, as we read in John multiple times, you will suffer. The world will hate you. Nobody's going to like you. Why? For my namesake. We're going to become like Jesus. Why is the world not going to like us? Is it a religious thing? It's because we're like Jesus. In fact, I think there's something to be said about having a lot of people not like you. That's not a bad thing. It's not you, it's Jesus that they don't like. And so, Jesus saves us absolutely all day, amen. Jesus saves our souls forever. He does not save us from having to go through trials, He uses these trials to make us more like Him to go where he went and where he is, which is the right hand of God. The goal is to perfect us and bring us into intimacy with the Trinity, with God. That is the goal. That is the aim of all this. With that in mind, Christian, you should be maturing. You should be growing. Are you closer... Are you closer to being more perfect? Perfecter, if that's a word. Are you closer to being more perfect than you were a month ago? A year ago? Since you started your walk in the faith, have you become more perfect? I mean, because James is clear. He says it multiple times. That's the expectation, is perfection. Just like God, you know, said, we are to be perfect like he is perfect. That is the expectation. And so be convicted But do not be discouraged. Be convicted, but do not be discouraged. I probably more than anybody in this room can tell you, I am not where I should be in my walk. I've been a Christian for 25 years, maybe a little bit more. Having had the experience I've had, the teachers I've had, the books I've had, I should be so much better, mature than I am today. Do not be discouraged, church. Be encouraged by verses 5 through 8. If any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask God who gives generously to all without reproach, and it will be given him. But let him ask in faith with no doubting, for the one who doubts is like a wave of the sea that is driven and tossed by the wind. For that person must not suppose that he will receive anything from the Lord. He is a double-minded man. Unstable in all his ways. And so what we have here, praise God, is, is is the way to find that joy in our trial, because we know the truth that we're supposed to. But what does that look like? And so God is saying, you have to ask for it. That's not default wisdom. Trials don't default into, let me see what joy I get out of this. Ask God. Ask God for wisdom. Pray, pray, ask God for that wisdom for joy in a trial. as, As I mentioned multiple times, the application of everything you read is pray and read the Bible, right? Pray. And so ask for wisdom. So what is wisdom? There's a lot of wisdom out there. Biblical wisdom is the application of truth to one's way of living. The application of truth to your life It is not knowledge of what is true, it is truth applied. There's a lot of people who know better who don't do better, as James will tell us throughout this book repeatedly. You guys know the right thing. You don't do the right thing. And so you can be very knowledgeable and completely unwise. It's just how do you apply what you know to your life? Thomas Watson said, Knowledge without repentance will be but a torch to light men to hell. The point isn't knowledge. You can have light. You can have a torch of light. You, you, you can ace seminary classes, win Bible trivia, all those things. You could, be, you could have the light and know the light, but if it's not guiding your steps, it, it's just a well-lit light and path to hell. The point isn't knowledge, it's the application of knowledge. And not just knowledge, but truth. The application of truth is wisdom. And we need to ask God for it, and I love in verse five that it says, God gives without reproach. So God is not like me, who sometimes is very annoyed when he has to get up and do something, or or give something. And so he isn't annoyed, He isn't troubled. He's not mad at you for taking so long to finally ask him for wisdom. He just gives it. Like the father of the universe, crazy, insane, perfect, holy, wise, wisdom beyond wisdom, and is willing to give it to you if you would just ask for it. He's glad you asked, and he's glad to give it to you As long as you ask the right way, which is to ask with faith. And it sounds simple, but it becomes difficult when you you know what to say. Again, the knowledge part. Well, you know what to say. You're supposed to ask God. God, give me wisdom. Do you have that application of faith? Like, do you have the faith that believes what you're asking? Or are you asking because you know you're supposed to ask? And so... If you don't have faith, well, there is reproach. There is offense. And God says, yeah, no, that's annoying. You're not going to get anything. You're going to ask me for something, and when I hand it out to you, you're not even ready to receive it. You just ask and walk away. You know, imagine asking for a slice of pizza, and, and you're about to give it to them, and they just turn your back and walk away. It's like, well, I guess you're not getting that, and it's not my fault. You should have believed that I was going to hand it to you. So often, when we lack maturity in our faith, it's quite frankly a lack of faith that's the issue. Because I think a lot of us know a lot. But we need to come to God in prayer in faith and ask for wisdom on how to apply it to our lives. Faith in God is what brings joy into trials because you know that what is happening is happening by a God who is good and, and wants what's best for you and is going to take you through this trial. And so you have faith. God is doing something in this. I don't have to be upset about this. I can have joy in this when the goal is to become more like Jesus. Right? That's where you get the joy from. As bad as this is, I am becoming perfect. That is what, that is what my God, that is what our God tells us. In trials, we are being perfect. That doesn't mean trials are easy. It doesn't mean that we're not going to hug each other and cry with each other. But we have that joy underneath. Even though our hearts gets crushed, it can't be destroyed, right? Because Jesus has it and he's using it and he's refining it to make us perfect like him. And so the the question is, are we wise enough to have faith in God? We just need to ask. Trials are an opportunity to become wise. Next time you go through a trial, think about that. Trials are an opportunity to become wise. Church, do you know? Do you trust that God knows the best version of you? Do you believe that God looks at every avenue you could take in your life and he knows what is the absolute best path to take? then do you have the faith to let him take you there? That's what this comes down to. Do you believe he knows what he's doing? Right? That's what we have to ask ourselves. How big is our God? How much faith do we have that God is going to take us through this? And we have joy because God is with us and God grows us and makes us more like Christ. Now as I pray to end the sermon today, I really want you to agree with me in prayer. Come alongside me in prayer. Um, In your spirit. You know, maybe saying amen or mm mm-hmm. Whatever it might be. Agree with me in prayer. Because I want to ask God for wisdom. And I want to ask God for the faith for us to receive that wisdom. I want us to be like the father in Mark 9. If you guys remember, this dad and I, I... can only imagine where his son is dying and he's asking Jesus to heal his son and Jesus responds, well if you believe enough anything is possible if you believe. And what is the father's response? I think the best prayer in the Bible I think we should pray this every day Lord I believe help my unbelief I believe Lord but help that part of me that does not believe I want all of me to believe. So let me pray for us. We hope you've enjoyed this Vanguard Bible Church podcast. You can find more sermon messages online at vanguardbible.org. Have a great week, and we hope we'll see you soon.